From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we're celebrating springtime and Earth Day. It's the time of year when animals are coming out of hibernation, flying back north, and having babies. So we'll hear five rapid-fire stories all about people's encounters with wild animals. Its tail is up, and it looks like it is just getting ready to spray him in the face. And we all just take a deep breath, and we hold our breaths really hard. First, Nate Summers is a survival skills teacher and naturalist. He regularly takes people on nature expeditions, so he gets to see how people react when they experience animals in the wild. He's also the dad of a -a two-and-a-half-year-old son. The morning we recorded Nate's story, his son was having a rough start to the day. Fussing and crying, and then, you know, suddenly we looked out the windows as the sun was rising, and um, started to watch the juncos and the squirrels nearby. And he pretty quickly started to smile and laugh and point at the birds and point at the squirrels and turned to me and he's like, Daddy, I feel better. Daddy, I feel better. And um, for me, that sort of sets up this whole wonderful look at humans and nature and animal experiences that I've gotten to see over the years. Back in the the mid to late 90s, there was something really extraordinary that happened in our country where the government actually approved the reintroduction of the gray wolf to different areas of the United States. And I was lucky enough to be part of some tracking expeditions tracking some of the first packs of wolves that was reintroduced in North America. I was leading a teen expedition on this wildlife adventure and tracking adventure out into this, you know, amazing backcountry. The place where our campsite was, there was a lot of dust out there, dust on trails, dust on the road. And so, you know, you would go out in the morning and and there would be, you know, chipmunk tracks and toad tracks and maybe Stellar's J tracks. You know, all these animals that had come by in the night. And a couple times while we were there, there were literally wolves that ran by our camp at night and left a trail of tracks through the middle of our camp on this dusty road. first couple days of the expedition, we would follow some relatively fresh tracks of, of, of wolves, and also elk and, and, you know, large animals. But on like day three or four of the expedition, we got word that some of the adults who were also doing an expedition nearby had found something pretty amazing. And so we needed to go check this out. We're hiking on these dusty roads, going in, you know, looking at this really wide open meadow where there is one of those oxbow streams that's cut through in all these different places. And we keep finding a few places where wolves have crossed this road. And then we drop down into the edge of this valley. And as we're walking through this field of of vegetation of, you know, things like camas bulbs and yarrow and other, you know, high mountain vegetation, we start to see that there are trails through the vegetation where the vegetation has been what we call flagged. And so these leaves have literally been flipped over and you can see these trails through the grass where animals have run. And we start to follow this through and then 
somebody in our group, I don't remember who it was, discovers an old carcass of a deer. And there's not a lot left. There's there's some bones, there's some hair, and we start to see where these trails that we're following are all converging on this one site. As we start to go along, we see places in the grass where it's like it's bedded down and we start to see wolf scats, you know, so they're um, they're droppings that are like fresh and full of like organ meat. And the kids, you know, are getting the sense of like, oh, my gosh. And as we come around to the edge of this oxbow, we look out into this stream. There's this bull elk carcass in the river. Its head is at an angle, so its immense antlers are turned upwards. So one antler is basically pointing towards the sky. The other one is like pointing down into the water. Its belly is wide open. It's just ripped open. And some of its viscera are actually like floating in the water. And then the the thing that just shocked all of us is there was a very, very large muddy wolf track on its right shoulder that you could see where that that wolf had jumped on it at some point. I, I don't think anybody said anything for like 15 or 20 minutes as we just sort of stared in awe at this elk and the story that was playing out in our mind. And later, we spent some time across that stream and went up to this hill because there was this point where the trees came down and the edge of the forest came right to the edge of the stream. And we found these giant wolf tracks. I mean, these were some of the biggest wolf tracks I've ever seen. They were almost six inches long and they were like four and a half inches wide. And what we deduced from all of this um, and put together a story is that there were wolves that were flushing this bull elk towards this oxbow and they were flushing it deliberately towards this spot where the trees came down and there the alpha male had emerged from the forest and had jumped onto this elk and with the help of the other wolves had torn into it. We actually got to measure that muddy wolf print on its shoulder and it had the exact measurements of the wolf tracks that we had found coming down that forest trail at the staying in the edge of the shadows there. And, you know, I know that at least one of those teenagers, their life was changed forever. That day, he decided he wanted to study wolves and wildlife for the rest of his life. And he went on to become a wildlife biologist. Kids, you know, weren't quite weeping, but you could see some tears in their eyes. Like, some of these kids, you know, had probably never seen a dead animal before in this way. And there were big thoughts of, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be wild? In my experience of leading these kinds of trips, I've realized and, and experienced myself this deep longing to have these kinds of experiences. That kind of close experience with nature was probably a core part of being human for a very long time. And now, what a rare and precious gift it is.
Nate Summers is the author of Primal, Why We Long to Be Wild and Free. And now, another story about the wild influencing career choices. Miles Notek grew up in Alaska, near the Kenai River. Where I grew up, 20 feet from the house is our little creek. It's pretty small. It's probably only about knee-deep at the deepest and maybe 25 feet wide at the widest. And every summer, as the salmon came up the Kenai River, they would work their way up to our creek. Every August through October, the creek would be full of salmon, uh, spawning, laying their eggs and dying. So with the fish came lots and lots of bears. I'd be playing along the creek and I'd find half-eaten salmon laying around on the banks and all the vegetation matted down. You could see where they'd walked everywhere, bear scat all over the place. My bedroom faced the creek. Every night I'd sleep with my window open. You could hear them walking through the water, their footsteps splashing, and I'd fall asleep to the sound of bears in the creek. We would kind of go explore the woods around our house and we were walking along one day and we came across um, this blowdown spruce tree laying, uh, laying across the woods there in this little meadow and kind of looked like somebody had made a hut out of grass. It was kind of all these big piles of grass and sticks and logs and stuff kind of piled up into a little, almost, yeah, that's the only way I could describe it, a little hut and with a little door. We approached it, what is this? And we poke our head inside and <laughs> there's there's brown bear fur all over the place. Like, oh, I think I know what this is. And we got <laughs> the heck out of there. But <laughs> My family raised goats just as kind of little pets for my sister and I, and they lived in this pen. I remember being woken up early one morning. The goats had been eaten and they were gone. I remember running on a trail. I ran with this chest holster of bear spray and I was running along and I came around the corner and uh, there in the trail, just kind of doing its own thing, walking towards me was this black bear. And I immediately went into that super defense mode that I kind of carried at that time around bears where it's just like, immediately jumped to the conclusion that it was after me. <laughs> I remember I reached for my bear spray and they started like yelling like, go on, get out of here, yada yada. And I flicked the safety off the bear spray. And when I did that, I dropped the safety. The bear could have cared less. It was just standing there in the trail, just like curious what this skinny two-legged thing was yelling about. and. <laughs> As I was backing up, I said, like, I need the safety for when I like, get away from the bear. So I like ran back towards the bear, picked up the safety, and then continued my hasty retreat and eventually got out of there. <laughs> I left Alaska in 2013. I moved to Bozeman, Montana to start college. I was recruited to run cross-country tracks and I remember I moved to Montana and I'd go out for these runs surrounding Bozeman. 
the people had warned me about the bears, black bears, brown bears, or I guess in, in Montana, Wyoming, uh, y'all say grizzly bears. So people would warn me about the grizzly bears. And I would go out for these long runs and I would never see any sign. One like, where are all the bears that everyone warns me about? That's Miles Notek. He realized how important his proximity to wildness was growing up. And he's since become an outdoor educator. This third story takes us to the islands where the theory of evolution was born. Ellen Prager is a marine scientist. In the 80s, she started visiting the Galapagos Islands for research. It is a really special place. And it's not just because of the types of animals. It's also because they're so well protected that they're acclimated to humans. And you get to observe their behaviors. And sometimes they're goofy, sometimes they're beautiful. You get to observe things that you don't normally see. Now, Ellen is a science advisor for a cruise line that visits the islands, which means she gets to introduce other people to one of her favorite places. It's an archipelago, meaning it's a group of islands that while they straddle the equator, you actually have a confluence of ocean currents, some coming from north, some coming from the south, and some actually upwelling from deep below that bring very cold water to the Galapagos. And then you have this strange combination of animals because they all have to get there from somewhere else. For instance, when you're snorkeling, you might see sharks and sea turtles and tropical fish, but then the next thing you know, a penguin swims by. And so you've got this strange mix of warm water and cold water animals. Sea lions are probably one of the most common animals in the Galapagos. They originally came from California and came in the what we call the Panama Current probably, and they swam down. And then what happened is they spent time in the Galapagos and they interbred and over time now they're their own species called the Galapagos sea lion. And they're very curious animals. Um, the only ones you really have to watch out for are the large territorial males because they do bite. Well, it's one of the things we always tell people, they're wild sea lions and so you don't want to harass them or surround them. But the pups and the juveniles are very curious and playful. And so that's where the, I think, the real fun comes in. So what happens is we go snorkeling when I'm down there with celebrity cruises. And it doesn't happen all the time because it's really up to the sea lions whether they want to play or not. But if you just happen to be at the right place at the right time, they will come over and they'll jump over you. They'll somersault around you. One of their favorite things to do is swim right up to you and blow bubbles in your face. If you dive down, I love to free dive, and you see a sea lion, a, a playful sea lion, if you dive down, they hone in on you immediately, and they will come and dive down with you. And then if you sort of twist around and somersault, they will do it with you. I had an older, very sort of conservative gentleman out snorkeling, and I told him the secret you know, of diving down and somersaulting and getting them to play with you. And he kind of looked at me like, yeah, yeah, right, you know, sure. So we were out snorkeling and a sea lion came out and I dove down and he played with me. I looked over at this man and I said, okay, remember what I told you? And he kind of, he really had this skeptical look on his face and he said, okay. So he dove down and the sea lion came and twirled and swirled and somersaulted with him. And he popped back up to the surface and I swear to you, 
he was giggling like a little girl. And it was just pure joy. And then he went down and did it again. Clearly, it is their choice to want to play with you and to come over and check you out. And I think there's something just so joyful about that. I think it teaches us that we can live in peaceful harmony with animals. We don't have to kill them or cage them or you know, do away with them, that we can find a way to live and coexist with them. Also, it just makes you appreciate how stunning nature and animals are. Ellen Prager is a marine scientist, and she's the author of a new children's book called Escape Galapagos and Dangerous Earth, What We Wish We Knew About Volcanoes, Hurricanes, Climate Change, Earthquakes, and more. One spring, a couple of years ago, Kristen Bargman decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. She was about a month into the hike. And so we get to the shelter, and it's a uh, two-story shelter. The bottom level of the shelter is just three walls, you know, so it's like an open place where everyone just lays down on the floor. And then there's a ladder where you can climb upstairs. It's completely enclosed, you know, it's got an angled roof, not much room to stand. So we climb up there because the bottom was full. And next thing you know, there is about, I think I did the math, I think there was almost 13 of us sleeping up there. Head to toe, shoulder to shoulder, there was no extra room. And uh, we had one person who was in a hammock who was also strung across the roof. It's way over capacity, but it, it should be fine. You know, and we're just in there playing games and telling stories, trying to pass the time until we all get tired. And, and we hear one of the guys who was laying on the bottom floor yell something. So we all climb down there and there's like this little thing. It looks more like a weasel, but it's black and white, like a skunk. And it's a eastern spotted skunk. And instead of having stripes, they'll have like, it's more spots. And we're looking at this little thing, it's so cute. And it's just, you know, swerving inside and out of the picnic table, kind of running away from us and coming back and being curious, you know. And once we realized it was probably a skunk, one of the guys kept trying to scare it off a little bit, you know, because it's just like, none of us want to get sprayed. We're going to be wearing these clothes for the next five months. But it keeps coming back and we're just kind of sitting out there letting it do its thing. After a while, we get really cold and we all go back upstairs. Well, then we hear a guy downstairs who some of them were asleep, but they were all waking up going, the skunk's back, the skunk's back. Well, the skunk is now climbing in the bottom floor of the shelter. So there's a lot of little holes for it to kind of come in and out of. And it was found itself this little hole in the wall and it kind of just laid there right next to uh, one of the hikers. And he wasn't too fussed by it. He's like, I'll leave it alone. And if it stays there, it leaves me alone, we're fine. And he kind of went back to sleep. But then it started being active and started climbing all over everyone's things again. And so they kind of ran it off. It came back. It was starting to get dark and we were like, okay, well maybe we'll just, maybe it'll just go away at dark. We all climb back upstairs and we get in our sleeping bags and we start to go to sleep. 
then we hear a skunk again. <laughs> and this little skunk, it's not only like downstairs, it has a little path that it takes in the wall. And next thing you know, it's upstairs. So here we are, like 13 of us, laying shoulder to shoulder in the dark with our headlamps on, with this skunk <laughs> in the corner, just spotlighted by all of us. It, it, it didn't even care that we were there, you know, but it's up there. And, um, you know, it's kind of doing its thing. And we're like, oh God, we, we gotta get it out of here. Uh, and one of the hikers, his name was Ghost, he kept barking at it like a dog to see if it would run it off to the point that we're like, dude, it's not doing anything anymore. <laughs> you know, we were like, look, just, just stop. So it seems to go away for a minute and finally, you know, we're getting tired. And some people were like, you know, just, you're gonna have to leave it alone. Like, it, it'll go away eventually. It's, it's, it's probably fine. So we all lay down. Well, then I'm in the corner, <laughs> a corner up against the building is like where I was sleeping. So like the side of my body is against the angled roof and my head is against a wall. So next thing you know, I just feel the skunk moving up across the side of my body kind of under my backpack because I was using it as a pillow and I felt it graze my hand and it just cruises on by and it's a little discerning because you just want to go to sleep and you don't want it to eat your food and you don't want it to bite you or you know you don't really know what's going on and there's a lot of people in here and uh, it kind of climbs in the corner where Ghost was because he was in the next corner and Ghost does the same thing he starts barking like a dog it kind of worked this time ran it off a little bit Next thing you know, it comes right back upstairs again and starts climbing all over all of us. It has, it's not faced that we're there. Finally, I just remember telling everyone, I'm like, look, we all have to get sleep. I think it lives up here. So just everyone just go to sleep. And if it climbs on you, don't scream because none of us want to get sprayed, especially the guy in the hammock. <laughs> he probably would have been the worst off. So we all lay down. And we're starting to sleep, and I can, you can hear it crawling around. And then at one point, I turn on my red light on my headlamp, and I look over. It's on top of our food bags. And next thing you know, one of the guys yells, Oh, God. Oh, God. He goes, I, It's tails up. I, I think it's going to spray me. And we all get up. And we turn on our red headlamps, and we shine it over at his corner. And here's the skunk, you know, just its rear end is like a foot away from his face. Its tail is up and it looks like it is just getting ready to spray him in the face. And we all just take a deep breath and we hold our breaths really hard. And it poops right there on the ground, right in front of his face. And it was hilarious and we all were dying laughing. And we woke up the people downstairs and they were like, what's going on? And we're like, nothing, you know, nothing, just go back to sleep. And the little skunk just trots off, goes back in the corner and goes to bed. <laughs> and then we wake up the next morning and the skunk was gone and no one was sprayed or attacked. <laughs> no one's food was eaten. And then we kind of all just, you know, made breakfast and then went on our way. And since then, you know, I'm pretty sure the, sh the shelter might even be shut down now um, because of bear activity, I think I saw. So the skunk probably has it all to himself now. <laughs> He's a clam.
We have a link to Kristen Bargman's blog at humannaturepodcast.org. Back in 2013, Luke Hittner was camping near Badlands National Park. One morning, while he was having breakfast, he saw a huge male bison on the other side of camp, rubbing up against a fence post. And not only that, there was a, a biker couple that had two bikes, and one of them had her phone up, pointing at her husband or boyfriend. And he was walking towards the bison. He had a handful of grass, and he was waving it up and down as he was coming towards the bison, probably an attempt to feed it. So I get up and I start running over there and yelling, hey, you can't be anywhere near that bison. It's a wild animal. He drops the grass eventually and starts walking back and says, well, I thought it was tame. It was so close to us. He thought this bison was tame, like a cow. People do think it's a zoo and these are wild animals and they're huge. I guess practicing social distancing is uh, appropriate around these animals as well. That's Luke Hittner. He lives in the Black Hills of South Dakota. You can see photos from these stories when you follow us. We're Human Nature Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, we're Human Nature Pod. And I'm at Erin JNS. And hey, if you liked this episode, tell someone about it. Word of mouth is our best advertisement. I'm Erin Jones. This episode was produced by me, Micah Schweitzer, and Alex Schaefer, with help from Megan Fury and Anna Rader. Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.